0: Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by a guest from the industry to discuss the most pressing industry issues. I'm David Thorpe, reporter at FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. Joining me today are David Jane, who runs a range of multi-asset funds at Myton, and Gary Waite, portfolio manager at Walker Cripps. Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Truths previously taken to be universal, such as that when equities rise bonds fall and that bonds are bought for income and equities for growth have become challenged in recent years those market characteristics have combined with longer lifespans for individuals to create a real dilemma for asset allocators david traditional portfolio construction gives very specific jobs to equities and bonds but do advisors need to think differently in a world of record low rates and soaring asset prices i think that's
1: that's that's a very Important question that we all need to think about at the moment. Quite clearly, people have regarded equities as the capital gain asset over time and bonds as the income capital protection asset. So in difficult times, perhaps recessions or whatever you'd expect, bond yields to fall, capital gains on your bonds to partially at least offset offset the losses you might be making on your equities. But in a post-QE environment, we're clearly in a very different world where equities and bonds have gone up together and equities have risen because bonds are rising and interest rates are now so spectacularly low. And therefore, you know, when we do get into difficult times, it's quite a reasonable hypothesis to think that those difficult times might be because bond yields are rising and because perhaps inflation's re-emerging and that whole post-QE hypothesis is starting to break down. So I think you need to think differently about capital preservation in portfolios in the current environment. Maybe you'll be looking towards defensive equities or perhaps precious metals or any form of alternative
2: capital preservation to diversify your equities. Gary, what are your thoughts? broadly very similar. Um, I think the the advisors that we deal with, it's almost a, a realization that they have to expect lower returns in this kind of environment when interest rates have gone so low. Uh, QE has inflated asset prices and all that heat has to come out of the system. So for us, it's a, a lot of work about talking to the advisors about the realistic expectations they can, or the return expectations they have versus the risk they're willing to take on for themselves and their clients.
0: Do record low interest rates make it more difficult to understand the risk associated with a particular
2: asset, Gary? Well, if you look at the multi-asset sector in a broad sense, over the past year, returns range from approximately minus 16% to plus 20 And that's largely driven by the different asset allocations of those funds. And so if you're heavily overweight in assets such as equities and gold over the past year, you've done very well. And the converse is true. And within that, you've got targeted returns. So they've got a targeted return for a targeted level of risk. And so your experience is wholly determined by the underlying asset allocation of the managers that you invest in. So you could be wholly invested in UK equities and gilts in some multi-asset return funds, and you can be invested in no equity, UK equities and no gilts. It all depends on the underlying manager. So it's a case of uh, aligning what you think about risk with the manager that you choose to place your marginal risk capital with.
0: Thank you. David, I know that you, you've been very vocal, shall we say, on the topic of the risks associated in particular with uh, with government bonds and the traditional perception of government bonds is that they're where you go for a safe haven. Uh, government bonds have obviously performed very well over the past year or so, over the past decade or so, one could argue. Same question, how, how do you feel that record low rates are impacting on the riskiness of various assets?
1: I think it's always been a slightly sort of untruth that markets have held that there's sort of a relationship that is sort of static and fixed between i suppose risk and return because clearly you know the the, the variable is risk risk is what changes over time not and, and and we can't control returns they come as a consequence in many ways and so when you're looking at, at asset classes and saying well you know maybe equities are you know, twice as volatile as bonds, and then you look at a situation like, say, the last six months where, you know, very long-dated bonds would have would, would turned 20-plus percent, well, clearly, that doesn't seem to make a huge amount of rational sense. And so, you know, if you were to consider, you know, loss as your measure of risk or potential for absolute capital loss then your attitude between equities and bonds would probably be quite different at the moment and you know when you're looking at many government bonds and 40 percent of all, all all investment grade bonds in euros now with negative yields on them well that's the certainty of a loss now if if risk is uncertainty then clearly the certainty of a loss is low risk but but for most real investors certainty of loss is a disastrous risk to be taking and so this understanding of risk i think needs to be a little bit more nuanced and so we would see particularly you know bond markets as as much riskier than they're widely perceived of at the moment because if the paradigm does change now that's, that's not to say bonds aren't don't have a role in portfolios i mean clearly their diversifying ability and the fact that that in many environments they do negatively correlate they clearly have a have a reward but i th- I think um, we need to think about risk very differently
0: in this low rate environment quite clearly thank you, but given that there's essentially a, a guaranteed buyer for many of those bonds, even at negative yields as in central banks how does that impact on the riskiness i mean absolutely. is is something risky if there's somebody out there who'll definitely buy it off you at today's price i think that's it's the guaranteed word that
1: makes me slightly shiver because everything will eventually change and and, and we're all living in this world i mean we are you know we're all guilty of this of just presuming that if the going gets tough the central bank's going to come in and buy some more and therefore but well, that's the uh, central banks current, current worldview, world view, right absolutely yeah. and and therefore You know, that's all great while it's great. And, um, you know, we all sort of broadly hold that view that, you know, if it gets tough, central banks are going to come in and punch in with some more free money. And so that is sort of what it is. But that is a classic example of a huge greater fool argument. The presumption being the central banks are rationally sort of happy to earn negative returns and subject themselves to the potential for high capital losses Ad nauseam in order to protect our wealth. Well, that's that's okay, but I think I'd want to
0: diversify that risk. Thank you, David Gary. How, how do you look at de-risking a portfolio? Given all that that you've both just said, what does de-risking look like?
2: Uh, broadly, it's as trying to get as many different diversified income streams into the portfolio as possible. So one thing that we do when we're de-risking the portfolio, we stress test our portfolios. So when you talk to advisors or underlying clients, then they're, they're not really that interested in the volatility of the portfolios or normal market conditions. This is the risk that we take on. What they really want to know is in the extreme market conditions, how much can my portfolio lose? And when you say in in the advent of another terrorist attack, your portfolio could go down by 15% versus benchmarks down 20%, 25%. Is that a good outcome given that scenario? That helps to construct a conversation about, well, perhaps you're taking on not enough risk or perhaps you're taking on too much risk in those extremes. And then it's a case of adding in those diversifying assets like infrastructure, uh, gold on the capital side, um, uh, certain types of private equity, the issue with diversifiers is that things like infrastructure have done very well. So there's limited upside in that kind of market. And also you, there's often a um, liquidity trade-off where you're buying into assets that you you can't necessarily get out of in a hurry. And that's really a, a, a dangerous situation when markets turn.
0: You. David, as, as Guy was alluding to, there's been a rise in demand and popularity for so-called alternative investments in recent years, and that can include such a wide range of things from private equity to, to hedge funds to student property, although that might be slightly less popular now than it was, aircraft leasing, the list is almost endless. What sort of exposure do you have to those um, types of assets in your, in your funds?
1: When I look at asset classes and, and, and investments, I tend to try and distill them down to what they really are. And, and pretty much all those asset classes reference was, you know, they, they might be alternatives in the way the market l- looks at them. In reality, they're either real assets, property or whatever, and, you know, just different forms of property, or they're different forms of fixed income assets, you know, aircraft leasing, that's a, essentially a lending structure, therefore a fixed income asset. So in reality, there is no alternative. You're just finding different ways of packaging the same things you know your exposure is to economic growth it's to inflation and it's to interest rates now you can you can find little niche subsectors but more often than not their lack of correlation is down to as as gary said earlier it's down to lack of liquidity it's not really down to lack of exposure so um you know we we're very cynical about alternatives and especially we're cynical about about the alternatives that that are done by creating leverage and sort of hedging structures around those 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 already leveraged assets. I think you have to really accept that in reality we can diversify, but we can't find a real alternative.
0: Uh, what's your view on gold? It's performed quite well. Again, it's, it's supposed to be the store of value if you get really high inflation. We don't have really high inflation. Yes. It's supposed to perform very well if bond yields are very low because the opportunity cost of owning a no-yield asset versus a... A yielding asset is there, but bond yields are are very low and interest rates are very low as we've talked about. What role do you see for gold?
1: We own gold in fairly reasonable size at the moment. We're we're not of the view as asset allocators that we should own gold at all times. You know, it, we take the view that there are times when it has a good role in the portfolio, like we do with pretty much any asset. And there are times you you shouldn't. I mean, clearly, I mean, you've referenced really what the main drivers with gold. It's real interest rates and it's fear, and I think both of those are very good reasons to have been owning it this year, and probably remain very good reasons. You know, we're you know, the the, the faith in, in in actual money is really being impacted by the fact that we're debasing it. Ever more as time goes on you know we're 10 10 years into QE now and at the same time the political situation you know the relation the, the globalized relationship between the economies looks ever more at risk and so gold and we wouldn't own this asset but things like Bitcoin and other alt currencies clearly look 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 like safe havens in that environment so um,
0: that looks set to persist for the reasonable future thank you. Another way to, to think, I suppose, about downside protection or diversification is to own uh, the asset classes that are cheap or that have underperformed, which are not the same thing. And UK equities are very, very unloved. People have been shedding them. We, we know the reasons why, and we don't really need to, to talk about those. But is there an argument for saying that uh, if you want protection from uh, a US equity market that, that hits new highs, from government bond yields that hit new highs, The thing to do is simply buy the asset class that hasn't risen because it is already baking in whatever you're afraid of when you don't want to buy the more high-performing assets. Gary, what's your view on on the UK? What's your exposure like?
2: UK represents our largest equity exposure purely because it's the largest equity exposure in our particular benchmark. We are, I guess, more constructive on the UK than most. The we, we feel that a lot of the bad news is priced in. The holdings that we do have are international dollar earners rather than domestically focused companies. So that gives us an element of protection. I think there there's some logic to um, buying the unloved assets when they're unloved. The danger is that you're catching a fallen knife. And I think it's very dangerous to buy something just because it's cheap on a relative basis, because you've really got to make that fundamental case that you really want to own these assets. And it all comes back to time horizons. I'm sure on a five or 10-year time horizon, the 50 might look relatively good value at the moment. But if you're talking about the next three or six months, that that might not be the case. And so really, it's for us, as having a diversified portfolio, global stocks, global bonds, uh, global alternatives where we can find them. And then it's really expecting the landscape change where uh cash we think over the next 12 months could be a competitive asset. And we've increased our cash exposure as well as our gold exposure because we're becoming increasingly more defensive. And that's that's due to a variety of factors. You can you can name 10 here, everything from Trump and China to Brexit to the potential of a Corbyn government, the list goes on. And so we see a lot of headwinds structurally for uh, uh, global economies, the UK in particular. So we're we're very much defensively minded at the moment.
0: Thank you. David, what's your UK uh, exposure like right now? Is it a theme that you're interested in? It's a theme that we're
1: inevitably interested in. I, I, I think, you know, we've been pretty much max underweight to the extent we care about underweights and overweights, which is very little. But essentially, we've had a very low UK weight pretty much since the Brexit vote. And it has underperformed global markets to a huge degree. The degree to which that is really reflecting concerns about Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn and all the other things that people worry about, the degree to which it's actually more reflecting the mix of companies that comprise the index, I think you can debate till the cows come home. But I think it's a reasonable hypothesis that the UK looks extremely cheap versus other Global equity markets on a stock for stock basis. However, cheap is you know as Gary said cheap cheap isn't a good enough reason to buy something. It's got to be cheap and going up as far as we're concerned. And there's there's a few bridges that need to be crossed. I think before global investors are really going to buy the UK again with some some conviction. I I, I agree on a five year view. I'd be very surprised if the UK hasn't hasn't off, you know sort of recovered some of that underperformance, if not all of it. However, that's not going to start until we know the answer to Brexit, until we know the answer to what the next government is and so on and so on and so forth. You know, falling knives are bad investments.
0: In addition to all of those cyclical and and macro topics that we've been discussing, traditional asset allocation has also been turned on its head by the fact that, quite simply, people are are living longer. Perhaps a generation of uh, fund managers before you guys, could prepare a client's portfolio for retire at 65, die at 75, maybe. And and that was how you could think about the world and it was relatively safe. Now it might be retire at 65, live to 95. Gary, how does that impact um, how, how you do your job day to day?
2: The uh, ageing population is a very interesting topic. I think at the moment... Uh, a man has a one in ten chance of living to a hundred, and a woman has a one in five chance of living to 100. a hundred. Very broad brush. If you have a longer time horizon, you tend to favour equities over anything else. The issue becomes when you retire, you stop earning income, and you haven't got the ability to to regenerate that capital if you lose it. So in that environment, I, a lot of advisors I talk to they they favour target return strategies because. Um, if a client can comfortably uh, survive, exist on a 4% per annum return, we're taking limited risk beyond that. That seems like a good outcome-orientated strategy. It's when you start chasing your tail because your capital isn't big enough that you have to take on extra risk in order to grow that capital to give you the income you need to survive for the extra 10, 15 years that you haven't possibly budgeted for. That's the issue. Um, it's very, um, it's an unnatural situation when you're asked to go above your risk tolerance just because you've got a certain lifestyle that you can't achieve otherwise. So the, the key for us is early planning, is being able to to look and say that you, you might not live until 75, 80s, you actually might live well into your 90s, what does life look like? In terms of asset allocation, over a longer period it would be equities and risk assets but if you can, uh, something like a targeted return strategy makes a lot of sense to me personally, because you know markets can be up ten percent or down ten percent in any given year. But if you're comfortable with earning a four or five percent targeted return and that's enough, why would you take on additional risk?
0: Thank you, David. In, in your your funds are, are have all got uh, cautious or defensive in the name, except for except for one, I think. Yes, for that question, for that asset allocation, if someone's going to live. 30 years longer? Do they all just pile in, pile, in, pile, into equities and uh, ride out the storms?
1: Do you know what? It, it's funny, isn't it? Because historically people would say post-retirement, you know, you want to gradually transition towards fixed income. But essentially what you would be doing by doing that is locking yourself in for the vast majority of customers with no chance whatsoever of meeting their needs over their remaining life. You know in the days where you could get three three percent real returns on fixed income, you match your durations you 're going to live for thirty years, you could sort yourself out a decent retirement income on a plausible amount of capital that 's not realistic these days and and yet that 's what the vast majority of pension schemes do. The way I look at it is turning it on its head. You know, a bit a bit like Gary said, you know, buy real assets with decent incomes that are growing in line with inflation, and that's gonna provide the bulk of your retirement income, you know. If you can if you can find whether be it equities, plenty of good yielding equities, be it those alternative assets, be it be it real estate and and so on and so forth, which have very long duration incomes that are likely to grow at levels around the level of GDP growth, you've solved your retirement needs because you've taken duration out of it because those those assets are persistent over over many, many decades. And so I think the traditional way of thinking about post-retirement needs to be turned on its head when
0: people are going to live for 30, 40
1: years post-retirement.
0: Thank you. Is that, have you, have you just made an argument for owning some of the uh, larger growth type stocks such as, Unilever, Diageo, etc. Are are they ticking the box that you've just described? They, they are to some degree. They they they're not they're
1: not remotely as cheap as they were ten years ago. It has to be said, but which is why you, you you sort of probably push the envelope a bit harder. Look at real estate. Look at some of those sort of alternative assets, and and look at some of perhaps the riskier, higher yielding assets. But one way or another, I think you want a diverse portfolio of real assets in retirement. Not a portfolio of fixed income assets because it's lower risk, because your risk is longevity, it's not volatility.
0: That's great, thank you, and thank you both for joining me this week. Tune in next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor Podcast.
2: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast.